Welcome to the Fort Hill Community Church Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning. All right. Good morning, everyone. Thank you again for joining us and those online as well. Thank you for joining us. You might recognize that behind me is a different graphic than what we are used to. Today, we're going to take a little different course. We're going to take a break from the book of John. And we are going to meditate together on Reformation Sunday. Okay, this is a little different. Today is Halloween, but something far more important happened today than candy and costumes. And that was this man behind me, Martin Luther. There he is, good-looking guy, German monk. Okay, we can all aspire to have his looks, right? Martin Luther, over 500 years ago, in 1517, a little over 500 years ago, he's a German monk. You guys probably know if you took, US, uh, if you took world history at all. Um, he nailed his 95 theses to the door at the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, and thus started what became known as the Protestant Reformation. Okay? And you sit where you sit today because this guy wrote these words down and nailed it to that door. All because of him. This Protestant Reformation led to a split in the Catholic Church, led to a recovery of the biblical gospel, and a return to the authority, sole authority, of Scripture in the lives of the church and followers Jesus. So today, I would be remiss if we didn't meditate on this guy, what he did, and why he did what he did based on Scripture. We're going to focus on Martin Luther today. It's going to be part history lesson. I'll try not to bore you too, too much. Part, part sermon, where we're going to focus on the one particular passage that illuminated his mind to understand for the first time God's love for sinners through His Son, Jesus Christ. And this passage was Romans chapter 1, 16 to 17. So you can turn there in your Bibles, particularly verse 17. We're going to follow Martin Luther's life this morning, and then we're going to work through Romans chapter 1, verse 17. There will be a test after the message today. If you do not get above 80%, you can no longer come to this church. Okay, so... I'm just kidding there. All right, so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to parse through this verse to look at this verse, and it's such an amazing thing. This man, one verse, changed the trajectory of not only the church, but the entire world as he meditated on this one verse of Scripture that we're going to look at. So Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, this is what it says. This is the Apostle Paul. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then our all-important verse. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Read it one more time. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, 
as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This man, Martin Luther, was born November 10th, 1483. His parents, his dad was, was a minor, somewhat well off, but they were from a line of peasants, okay? So this guy is not like royalty or anything. He had a very harsh upbringing, a severe upbringing, both in home and in school, beaten by his parents, by his teachers, just really um, strict upbringing. Martin Luther goes through school. He didn't really have it in mind to be a uh, priest or a monk or do any of that. He did well in school. He got his degree. He was going to be a lawyer. Talk about two different paths, right? <laughs> a lawyer or a priest. He was going to be a lawyer. His dad wanted him to be a lawyer. But all that changed. One fateful evening, July 2nd, 1505, Martin Luther is on his way home from his parents' house. A violent thunderstorm overtook him, similar to just add thunder to last night's rain. That's probably what he was experiencing. In the middle of that thunderstorm, certain of imminent death, Luther exclaimed, Help, beloved Saint Anna, I will become a monk. He's very much a Catholic. He believed in the Virgin Mary as far as her immaculate conception that she was without sin. He prayed to the saints. He did penance. He never missed Mass. He was a Catholic, German, German Catholic, praying to St. Anna to save him that he would become a monk. Two weeks later, he committed himself to the church as a cloistered monk. What does that mean? You say goodbye to your family. You say goodbye to your friends. You say goodbye to your possessions. You take a vow of poverty. And that was his life. For years and years and years, he said goodbye to all that. His dad was not happy about it. His dad wanted him to be a lawyer. His dad put up all this money for him to go to school, to excel in university. He got a degree, going to be a lawyer. You know what? I'm going to serve the church. And it was within this context as a German monk, and I'm sure you've seen the pictures of him with his bald head right here and the hair all around here. I've thought about doing that myself, but Hannah wouldn't let me do it. It's in this context that he stumbles upon Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where he reads this text, and that's the, what we're going to jump into now. The first part of Romans 1, verse 17, where he reads, The righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. Now, whenever you read that, you read that, and you probably feel better about this section of this verse than Luther did. Luther, Martin Luther, was an especially pious Catholic monk, and whenever he read this text, the righteousness of God is revealed, he was extremely distressed and burdened by it. This was not a fun text for Martin Luther to read. To Martin Luther, the righteousness of God was an incredibly fearful thing. He was afraid of God's righteousness. That word there can also be translated justice. He was afraid of God's justice. To understand why, we need to understand what it means, what this word means. To be righteous is to have right standing. To be morally right. So Martin Luther is reading this, 
And he's saying that God has revealed his righteousness. And he's thinking, well, who can have right standing with God? I certainly cannot have right standing with God. It's like if you're a person and you come before a judge, there, the judge is up on his, you know, his pedestal there, you're on the floor. If you're considered righteous, the judge has no charge to bring against you. The righteous person, the justified person, is declared morally right. They have done nothing wrong. They've done everything right. There's no condemnation the judge can bring against this person. By their actions, they are morally pure. They are righteous. So Martin Luther, this is his thinking. And then he's coming to this text, and he's distressed because he knows in God's courtroom, that's not the case. In God's courtroom... He fails God's standard of righteousness. So he comes before God. He says the righteousness of God is revealed. That's bad news for me because I don't stand up to the test. I don't make it out. And so understanding this, understanding his own sin, understanding his own unrighteousness, Martin Luther drove himself crazy with intense and obsessive rule-keeping. This guy was the top monk as far as scrupulous rule-keeping. His religious practice was described this way. This is from the, the text I was working through preparing. He assumed the most menial offices to subdue his pride. He swept the floor. He begged for bread through the streets and submitted without murmur to the aesthetic severities. So he's thinking, i got to get myself right with God, so I need to do the lowest of the lowest things. I need to beg for bread. I need to do this as a motivation to make myself right with God. Okay, To the point where he would endure or practice what's called self-flagellation, which is where the person would whip themselves. And it's a form of self-discipline. That's what the monks did way back in the day. Just whips. Like Jesus was whipped. We'll whip ourselves as a way to discipline the flesh. This is what this guy did. Continuing on. He said 25 Lord's prayers with the Hail Mary in each of the seven appointed hours of prayer. So these guys had seven hours of prayer. And each time he prayed 25 Lord's prayers with Hail Marys. 25 times seven. 175 prayers. It's a lot of prayers, right? It's a lot of prayers. Just to have that seven-hour a day, but 25 Lord's Prayers on top of that. He was devoted to the Holy Virgin. He regularly confessed his sins to the priest at least once a week. This guy was like top of the totem pole there. But such rule-keeping did little to assuage his guilt. It was said of him that upon exiting the confession booth, he would remember a sin that he did not confess. And in a state of despair, this penance that was supposed to bring him relief only increased his burden of sin. What if he died before he got back to the confessional booth, right? He would be in a state of condemnation. He never confessed that sin. And so you can understand kind of where this guy is at. That God was always over his shoulder. The righteousness of God is revealed. Man, I'm not going to make it. He thought of God as a terror. 
He thought of God as a brute, a divine cosmic version of his parents and the teachers of his youth. Only this time, he couldn't run away because God is always near. How could the justice and righteousness of God be good news? That's what it says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Gospel means good news. I'm not ashamed of the good news, for in it, in the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. How the heck could that be good news? Wouldn't it be better news if God did not hold us to a standard of righteousness? Wouldn't it be better news if God said, you know what, you should be charged guilty, but you know what, I'm just not going to worry about that anymore. Wouldn't that be good news? How is it good news that God's righteousness is revealed? The more Luther thought on these things, the more he hated not only God's righteousness, but God himself. For many of you, you also may have had the same experience that Luther had in his beliefs about God. Maybe you too have had a harsh upbringing, and you looked to God for relief, but found an even worse version of what you had already experienced. Maybe you too believed, as Luther did, that the path to getting right with God was paid with good works, that you needed to appease this God, that you needed to go to church, that you needed to tie, that you need to do this, this, and this in order to be made right. In prior ages, these good works were described as being religious. Sunday morning, Sunday evening, if you're really old school, Wednesday evening, like me, even though I'm not old, right? Just how it was for me growing up. In our day and age, it's less religious good works. It's more just being a good person, whatever that means. Whatever society has decided is good, I'm getting into heaven by being a good person. That's what Martin Luther thought. It just looked different. We, we don't whip ourselves anymore. We do different things. Okay? In both instances, the final destination is the same. It was a dead end. For Martin Luther and for you, if you went through that, where you find out the thing that you were doing just isn't working. It's not leading to the results that you thought it would. It's not leading to the life that you thought it would. If God is real, then why is my life the way it is? Why am I spinning my wheels and getting nowhere? I think that's a lot of people, that they are under this belief that it is about good works, being a good person, again, very amorphous understanding of that, that they'll be all set, that God is there, and, and He is about whatever they're about. But at the same time, if they really consider their lives, it does come up a little bit short. That maybe they're not quite where they thought they would be, and if God do, is real, then why doesn't He feel close? If this is you, then may I offer a suggestion? And this is what happened to Martin Luther. Maybe it's time for you to rethink what you thought you knew about God. Maybe it's time for you to take, this is my view of God, and examine it. Because maybe you're wrong. Maybe it's time for you to rethink God. Because that is exactly what Martin Luther did, and it led to his breakthrough. He was deathly afraid of the righteousness of God, in verse 17. But then he kept reading. And that brings us to our second section here. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. 
our second part we're going to look at. For Luther, this horrifying righteousness could only be attained for him by good works, again, by being a good person. But then he stumbles upon this clause. It says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. Okay? It doesn't say the righteousness of God is revealed from good works. It says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. Now think about it. This guy was trying to attain this righteousness in the exact opposite way of what the text was actually saying. It said faith, not good works. Faith, not good works. Why then did he do the good works piece? Why did he go about it that way? I think that tells us a lot about the human condition. What this means, that righteousness of God is attained by faith, it means God never intended for us to earn right standing with Him through our good works. God did not send us His Bible, okay, and it's totally opposite of how we think. God did not send us His Bible and say, see how many of these things you can keep, Report back to me in a lifetime, and we'll see if you make it into the heaven club. It's not how it works. It wasn't like a, you know, like a divine scavenger hunt. Good works does not reveal God's righteousness. It does not attain God's righteousness. It does not secure God's righteousness. What secures it? Faith. Belief in Christ. It is not earned. It is received by faith. We are made right with God by faith, whereby He grants to us His righteousness because we believed in Jesus Christ, His Son. Whenever God looks at me, okay? Whenever He looks at me, all the sin, all the jacked upness, the good works is me getting brushes and trying to get off the nasty, right? Trying to get off the sin. Doesn't work, okay? I don't know if you've ever spilled grape juice on your carpet, right? You're going to have a stain. There's no way around it. You're going to have a stain. And you can scrub, scrub, scrub. You're going to have a stain. What you need to do is get rid of that and replace it. The righteousness of God through faith is God looking at me, not seeing my sin, not seeing me, seeing Jesus. He sees his Jesus' perfection. He sees Jesus' righteousness. He looks at our sins and says, this man enters into heaven, is right with me, not because of what he has done, pointing at me, but because of what he has done, pointing at Christ, the crucified and resurrected Jesus. This is what Luther understood. Now, consider how crazy this is. You're within a context where everyone around you, your higher-ups, the highest higher-up, the Pope, you're training, everything you've received says you got to work, work, work. And to have the boldness to believe, you know what, those guys are wrong. Because that's not what the Bible says. Through faith. Luther writes this upon this discovery. I felt that I had been born anew. And the gates of heaven had been opened. The whole of Scripture gained a new meaning. And from that point on, the phrase, the justice of God, or the righteousness of God, no longer filled me with hatred, but rather became unspeakably sweet by virtue of a great 
love. How incredible is that? This discovery became known as the doctrine of justification by faith alone. By faith alone. Not through works, not through the Pope, not through the church, not through your Hail Marys. Faith. Sola fide. Only faith. The Apostle Paul that wrote Romans 1.17 also wrote this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-9. to For by grace you have been saved through faith. God's grace, not earned, given through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It makes it very clear how easy it is for our hearts to twist what God has made clear to make crooked the straight paths of the Lord. This doctrine of justification by faith alone is all at once the most wonderful news in the world, but also the most unbelievable. Really think about it. You have a million, billion, trillion dollar debt, infinite debt, that you could never pay back. You could work, 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 work. Take all the money in the world. If you're the government, tax all the money in the world, bring all the money in, not enough to pay down the debt, but then God says, you know what? It's clear. It's not on you. I'm going to bring someone else. They're going to pay it for you. And you think, okay, what's the catch? Right? What's the catch? It's too good to be true. There has to be a catch. One of the hardest things for us to do is to take God at his word. If you think about it, that really leads to all of the issues we have in life. We're just not taking God at his word. This struggle, this circumstance, this sin, this calling that we don't, this path to take that we don't want to go down because we don't know what's at the end of it, God tells us to take him at his word. It's hard for us. Particularly when God does something that's the exact opposite of what we do. Let's put ourselves in God's shoes. Someone sins against you. What do you want to do? You want to smack them in the head, right? You want to retaliate. Someone wants forgiveness from you. Well, I need to see that you deserve forgiveness. I need to see you do X, Y, and Z to earn forgiveness. This is how we deal with people. This is not how God deals with us. This is the exact opposite of how God deals with us. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, God wrecks that worldly calculus. Instead of God saying us that you need to do X, Y, and Z, he says, no, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z for you. You just believe. You just have faith that I've done it. I'm going to take the test that you have to pass 100%, and I'm going to write your name at the top of it, and submit it as if you yourself had scored a perfect score. That's the gospel. I'll die on the cross for your sins so that you can have my salvation and my forgiveness based on nothing that you've done, everything I have done. The righteousness of God revealed by faith. Psalm 130, verse 3 says this, If you, O Lord should mark iniquities, which is what we do. We mark iniquities, right? 
especially with our spouses. Like, you didn't do this, 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 and this. We just hoard them, like, so we can bring them out whenever there's another argument, right? If God should mark iniquities, oh, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So crazy. The one who is pure, righteous, holy, who has every reason to be indignant towards sin and is indignant towards sin, who does judge sin, comes to us and provides the only one who never deserved the death, takes the death in our place. We just have to believe. Justification by faith alone reveals to us that with the coming of Jesus, God no longer deals with us. He no longer deals with you according to your sin. He deals with you according to his Son. According to his Son. Do you believe or not? Do you look at him and believe or not? That if we have faith in his Son, he looks at us not as orphans, but as sons and daughters. And so, a lot of you guys have believed in this Jesus. Let me encourage you in this way. Whenever God looks at you for us falling in sin, there's two things. One, if we don't know this Jesus, repent and believe. But if we do know this Jesus... Don't dare ascribe to God the mentality that you ascribe to others. In that, whenever others fail you, we are often disappointed. If we are in Jesus, whenever God looks at us, He's not disappointed. He's not mad at you. He's not frustrated with you. Whenever we fall in sin, if we've been justified in Christ... God is not throwing up his hands, regretting that he ever saved us. Jesus' blood is enough to cover all of that, no matter what. He comes to you with the open arms of a father. All you have to do is respond in faith. And so this justification by faith alone is both for the saved and the unsaved. I know for me, whenever I think about myself and how I often stumble and fail, it's easy for me to accuse myself before God. If that is you, and I know some of you deal with that, that is not from God. That is from Satan. He is the accuser. He accuses us in our sin. He says, man, I can't believe you kept failing and doing this. Don't you know Jesus saved you? Why do you keep messing up this way? God is so disappointed. It's not how it works. God is eternally satisfied in the salvation that Jesus and the payment that Jesus has made. And he always comes to you with the open arms of a father because you have believed. And it's not in your ability to do it. It's in God's ability to do it. And he has done it. It is finished. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith. God's made it so easy for us. We just have to believe. Martin Luther realized this, and the gates of heaven were opened up to him. He would need this faith. Praise God, the gates of heaven were opened up to him because his next step was not through those heavenly gates. He still had to live the rest of his life, and it was the rest of his life that would not be an easy one. 
And this is why the passage ends the way it does. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He had a lot more life to live, and he would need the faith that he discovered to live it for the days ahead. This newfound understanding that Martin Luther found, this justification by faith alone, you can imagine the tension that it would bring to his everyday work life, right? You can imagine the tension that it would bring. He's a monk, later becomes a priest, becomes a professor, is teaching the Bible, and he begins teaching things that don't quite line up with what the Pope is saying, with what the higher-ups are saying, what the Catholic Church is saying, right? You can imagine the tension that comes, this obscure yet gifted priest and professor, even still committed to his Catholic faith, praying to Mary, celebrating Mass, praying to the saints. I mean, that's going on. It's sort of a mixed bag there for a little bit. But all this started to change whenever he decided to take a stand against what he believed was wrong, and distracting from people from the true source of salvation, that was Jesus Christ. And this particular issue in the church was from this one practice of the church called the selling of indulgences. Okay, The selling of indulgences. This will be on the test. Particularly through the man Johann Tetzel. Okay, So let me just explain. So Martin Luther, he's a monk. He's knocking it out. He's preaching, teaching through Romans, teaching through the Psalms. But amongst this, there was a practice in the Catholic Church where a church member could buy for themselves remission of punishment of sin. So you sin, you're going to be punished for that. You throw us some money, we will go to the depository of grace that the saints in Jesus has collected for the church. We're going to get some of that grace depository. This is what they believe. The church had access to the grace of God that they could administer to people in the church. You could buy that grace through the priest if you give us money, and we will give that grace to you in the form of remission of punishment. Okay? In purgatory. Purgatory, you go there, you have some punishment you need to be punished for because of your sin. Before you can go to heaven, we will lessen that sentence if you buy an indulgence. And the guy in Germany who was the man at selling indulgences was Johann Tetzel. And let me tell you, business was booming. His sales pitch. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, drop it in there, the soul from purgatory springs. So if you have a mom or a dad a loved one who has passed away, and you want to save them from the punishment and pain of purgatory, you'll shell out money. That's exactly what happened. He also said this, the cross of the seller of indulgences has as much power as the cross of Christ. If you have enough money, it is just as powerful as the cross of Jesus. And so again, if you could pay for your relatives to not go through purgatory, you would do that, and many did that. And they made so much money, the Catholic Church did, that they were able to build this church behind me. 
There it is. St. Peter's Basilica, okay? Most famous church in the world. They built it, the selling of indulgences. They built it, doing the very thing that Martin Luther railed against. You can go to the next picture here. There it is. How crazy is that, right? I'm sure you've seen this. This is the history. It was the building of this church, a bunch of other things, but the building of this church that had a part in the, in the protests that Martin Luther led. It was in protest to Tetzel and the selling of indulgences and the money gained to build this place that Luther wrote his 95 Theses. And then he nailed to the door of the church in Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517, what we're calling Reformation Day today, 504 years ago. Copies of the 95 Theses were made. The printing press just was coming out. They were able to print this stuff, spread it throughout the region. Martin Luther continued to write, wrote a bunch of other things, spread throughout the region. Eventually, the higher-ups did not like this. Four years later, Martin Luther is brought before the German emperor in the town of Worms, spelled W-O-R-M-S, not Worms, but Worms. He's brought before the council there, in 1521, they called Martin Luther to recant of his writings and teachings. If he did not, he would be seen as opposing both the church and the empire, both God and the state. Talk about being between a rock and a hard place. You got the government and the Pope against you. One man, German monk, with a weird hairdo, okay? Called to recant. To this, Luther responded, my conscience is a prisoner of God's word. I cannot and will not recant, for to disobey one's conscience is neither just nor safe. God help me. Amen. Other accounts include this. Here I stand. I can do no other. Again, we read in this text, the righteous shall live by faith. Never has the text been exemplified more powerfully than in this man, Martin Luther, who was unwilling to flinch from what he believed to be true of God's word. Think about that. Really think about that. One guy against all sources of authority, all the powerful authorities in this world, and yet he was so convinced of the truthfulness of God's word and the justification and the gospel and the good news that he had discovered that he had been so oppressed by sin before, he knew within himself that this was the truth. And so as a righteous man, through the righteousness that Jesus provides, he lived by faith. He walked by faith. And by that protest unwilling to recant, he led what became known as the Protestant Reformation with the recovery of the biblical gospel and faithfulness to Scripture alone as authoritative over the life and the practice of the church. As we consider this today, I want to call you to the same type of faith. The faith that we have in Jesus is much more than a saving faith. It's a living faith. It's a living faith. It's the faith you live out. And you're going to come 
against authorities and people and situations and circumstances in this world, they're going to say, hey, don't follow God's word here. Do this. Now, the stakes might not be as high as with Martin Luther, but in one sense, the stakes are very high. Every time we are tempted to go against the word of God, the stakes are enormous. Because one compromise here leads to another compromise here, leads to another compromise here, and then you're way over in left field. We are reminded of Jesus' words in the wilderness, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is how we live our lives, by God's word. This is how we make our decisions a million and one temptations in this world to compromise, but we must remember the righteous shall live by faith. And so I ask you, what does it look like for you to live by faith? What does it look like for you to believe the promises of God that we have in his word, that you are justified by faith? Do you struggle with sin in your life and despair and think that God has turned his back on you because he just can't do anything with you? Have you forgotten the faith that God has saved you with, that it is the blood of Jesus that is powerful enough to save? Do you look at God as a taskmaster? Do you look at him as a father? Do you work to receive his approval, or do you cling to the cross of Jesus? Do you walk with a conviction and a power and the truthfulness and the authority of God's word? Are you wayward in your belief? In all instances, I call you to faith. Believe. Jesus is enough. His word is enough. His power is enough. Rest in that. Believe that for his glory and for your good. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the example of Martin Luther, who essentially to us, is just a picture of what faithfulness to your word looks like. What your word can accomplish. It's not that Martin Luther was this amazing, incredible, super-Christian guy. It's that he believed. That is what it was. He believed. He had faith. I think about Abraham. As good as dead, 100 years old. His wife Sarah, 90 years old, barren. And it says in Romans chapter 4 that you promised him a son. No son. It says the older he got, the more certain he became. The more desperate the situation was, the darker the moment got that he would ever have a child, the more faith he had that you would deliver on your promise. The more faith he had that you would deliver on your word, that you'd be faithful to your word. Lord, the power of faith. We've seen it in this man, Martin Luther, from one text. Help us of little faith to take you at your word. I think a lot of times we wait and think that there's some type of breakthrough that the stars just have to align for this thing to work out in our life or for this next thing to happen. As long as we try really, really hard and work really, really hard in this area and that area, something will change, Lord. That's not it. 
You tell us to believe, to take you at your word, to abide in Jesus. Push us to the limits of that. Because there are some moments that are tough. Help us to walk the path of faith regardless of where it leads. That here we stand, we can do no other. That we have to take you at your word. I pray for all of us, wherever we're at, whatever our situation is, our lives are all different. The applications look different, but the principle remains. Lord, if we are not with you, if we don't, have not made that confession, work in our hearts to reveal our sin, to send us in despair of our working. And then from that despair, lift up our eyes to see the salvation you offer freely. For those of us who do know you, whether lost in sin, struggling with sin, what other, other issues we have, Lord, help us to never let go of the cross. To that we cling. It's so easy for us to let go. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your example here with Martin Luther. I thank you for these people. I thank you for this church. May we never lose sight of the gospel that has saved us. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We pray and sing and preach and do all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning at Fort Hill Community Church in Gorham, Maine. For more information about Pastor Aaron or Fort Hill Community Church, visit us on Facebook or check out our website at www.forthillchurch.com.